to AP Marvel. Um, it is a nice, sunny summer evening, um, and we are recording a nice, sunny summer hot take on Dark Phoenix. I'm Izzy, as always, with Sabrina. Hey, everyone. And Chris. Hey. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. That's not Chris <laughs> Compendio. That voice sounds deeper. <laughs> It's not Sabrina. Today we have Chris Walker from... Uh, actually, no, I'll let you introduce yourself, Chris Walker. Uh, yeah, my I'm Chris Walker. I'm from The Rhyme. I'm usually from Rising Young Minds with Brandon Kessley. And we also have another podcast slash vertical called Nerdcraft Nation, where we're basically doing something similar to AP Marvel, except we're going throughout the entire expanse of comic books, video games... And movies of the like. So, a lot of nerd shit, as some people would say. But we love it. It's fun and enjoyable. And yeah, I'm also on the side, like, kind of a writer. I try to edit as much as I possibly can. And I read a shit ton because I get bored in the middle of the day. I think that's a good description of me. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Sabrina, Uh... your brother would somehow try to work in the word goat and i would say no you have to be humbler than that (laughs) oh you're much too modest so as mentioned this is going to be our dark phoenix hot take or as it's it's titled the supernova take um as of this as of this recording um release dark phoenix will have been out for a week and i don't know you might have watched it you might have not. We're going to go into some spoilers, so you can either listen along if you don't want to watch a movie but want to hear what we thought anyway, or just, like, see for yourself if you want to watch it or not. I don't know. That's... Or wait till it's on Netflix. Exactly. Or Disney Plus at this point. <laughs> True. <laughs> we love industry yeah. humor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so to start off, we're just going to go into some of our initial thoughts, um, on just like essentially history about our own experience with the X-Men universe from Fox. Sabrina and I were in an episode last week where we essentially went into a sort of memoriam of sorts for the Fox X-Men universe because that was most of our lives. I'm 21. (laughs) So am I. That universe was 20 years long. Yeah. I'm 28, and I remember the start of it to the end of it. And I poured out a little bit of my beer that before I started this for it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, like, it definitely feels like... I definitely realized the episode that I had a more emotional attachment to this universe than I thought, because, I guess just to start with me, um, X-Men First Class was the movie that sort of got me into, like, a deeper interest in like the entertainment industry like I remember reading about I don't remember I guess what actor broke me into like interest about first class but I thought like oh this is so cool like it's this like prequel movie this origin-ish story about these characters that have been like pretty like esteemed so to say I didn't know how the last end and Wolverine the X-Men Origins Wolverine um I didn't know how much they sucked so much um what I thought was like a really interesting concept, and I got super excited. And then I watched the movie, I loved it a lot. And so 
and just wanted to learn more and like be into it and it's more about like the industry in general so yeah I had a very sentimental sort of realization and like look back and it is bittersweet because this because arguably I think at least for the first X-Men film like in 2000 or like 1999 I don't remember that did start like off this huge wave of superhero movies and now this historical beast is ending and really no one ever thought it would so yeah yeah so, exactly I think I mean, you can't predict big money deals at all no definitely not but I just to add a little bit to that because my experiences with X-Men are very similar to those of Izzy's but I took a liking to the X-Men because well back in the earlier 2000s mostly because I felt as though they had a lot of interesting things to say about things that were sort of written as being incredibly outlandish but rooted in general common sense or I guess like it, they were the topics or social issues that um, the X-Men talk about in or that they cover in the comics and in the early 2000s movies as well were topics that issues that weren't really explored that much you know topics from immigration to um, race relations and understanding things like that and how it's such a complex blurred uh, line type of scenario that I feel like the X-Men franchise was able to capture really well and things that I didn't even think would be as interesting or as important to our quote culture as they still seem to be today. So I've loved X-Men for that reason, but also as I mentioned in last week's R.I.P. Fox episode, I love the X-Men, I loved um, Fox's iteration of Elektra. And I know that that movie was complete garbage, but as the eight-year-old, I think that I was eight when that movie came out, maybe even younger, I kind of just go to eight-year-old because it's the default for me, but as young as I was when watching that movie, I feel like I really resonated, uh, it really resonated with me because I found it to be interesting and fun. Yeah, I was right. I was eight years old when it came out. Um, and funny, but for all of the wrong reasons that I guess still hold up today. But it left a really big impact on me because of Jennifer Garner and because of the entire production, really. Um, and so to be able to see Fox and Marvel move the X-Men into a new iteration today is really interesting because they're trying so hard to make it current and especially with like putting so many newer and more popular faces um, to the point where like 20 years from now when they redo it again, if they decide to, it'll be like an interesting look back on what was interesting or what was important to us during these days. Yeah, you bring up a great point. Like you were mentioning earlier that yeah, like for Dark Phoenix, they had to cross-promote with Game of Thrones for Sophie Turner because of Sansa Stark. So, yeah, it's a hot bubble of, like, what's popular at the time and, like, who was big in the news. Yeah. It's kind of like a little time capsule today mm-hmm. at this yeah, point. Yeah, definitely. And even in, like, 1999, 2000, who, like, uh, I can't, I can never remember who played Jean Grey, but, like, that's Tom the start of Hugh Jackson. Yes. yes. The love of my life. Like, yeah, they were popping at that point. Like, Hugh Jackson, that was, like, his, one of his first big American roles. 
and like that starts his train of just like popping up in as many movies as he possibly can and of being a huge jacked man ha 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 yeah. ha 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 yeah puns yeah even like for michael i think i heard of michael fassbender through first class and now i'm very grateful yes but yeah man the same definitely a star-studded <sighs> cast did you say he can sing no, I said that man's a saint. Oh. Ooh. Ooh. He had a oh. couple cases. Oh, for real? Damn. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. Michael, I, no! That's the thing is that I'm waiting for the shoe to drop about James McAvoy. Like, I, I, I hope. It's just that every time I like somebody, it's like, boom, they do something to really just set that's it off. True. Listen, I'm worried about Tom Hanks, but not because I think he did anything bad. I'm just waiting for it to come out. Right, So I'm exactly. trying to keep my my like hopes low but like at the same time don't do this to me america don't do this to yeah. me yeah don't do it there's a few there's a few people that I'm like dude if you if stuff came out about you like the world's dead like there's no hope i've everything's dead long live the heat death of the universe i couldn't i can't care anymore because you've done cuz you're a shit person too <laughs> yeah oh man it'd break my heart break my damn heart at least Alec Baldwin is just trash as a human being as a whole. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's always constant. Yeah. All right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Chris, what were your initial, I guess, what's your history with the X-Men universe in general? So to get very in-depth, I was a terrible reader as a child, like horrible. My mom put me in hooked on phonics classes very early on and Literally, I would watch TV all the time because my mom always worked and stuff like that. So TV is a really great babysitter, by the way. But uh, I watched the X-Men cartoons. I watched every iteration of them. And I literally, it, I took to it very easily. The comic books really helped me like learn how to read and learn how to be confident about reading. But it also taught me about racism in a way, in a different way of viewing it and seeing things like in social issues like that. When the movies came out, like I just, I literally ran to the theaters for the first one and for the second one. For Last Stand, I watched it that first week and I was like, I don't know what's going on here. There's a lot of decisions that have been poorly made. And I started to realize that I had real opinions about movies and I was like, oh damn, I, I think I'm maturing a little bit. And then, like, first class came through, and I, it kind of just renewed my interest back into the comic books, and maybe, like, because that comes out, I think, around my sophomore, junior year of college. The other ones came out when I was, like, in elementary, middle school. So that's, like, a big gap of time for me, but um, for anyone, really. But when first class came out, it really renewed my interest back in the comic books. It renewed my interest back in really in superhero movies as a whole because I wasn't as deeply involved in the MCU yet. And I don't know, I think it kind of just gave me an avenue to look in on it. But uh, I think that's a good enough description. I will say this though, I, when I was listening back to the year RIP Fox episode, I wanted to just scream that they should have made Fantastic Four into a TV show because they have Ooh. so many epic tales Ooh. and like you could just run that for like six seasons 10 episodes each and just like see what happens you could put it on stars you could put it somewhere but like i don't know 
That's what I've like always a thought. Smallville kind of deal. Yeah. Like yes. Imagine if, Ooh. like, honestly, that cast on TV, I would watch them all day. Even if it was like a yeah. um, like a premium network show. Ooh, especially if it was a premium network show. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Throw that bitch on Showtime. FX, right. Like, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. Like Jessica, like Jessica Alba, like alone is like a huge enough draw to just watch that. I've always thought that Jessica Alba was perfect for television. Like I have no premise for this, but I just always, I liked Dark Angel. I think that's it. I think that's my only reasoning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I could see that. She has like, she's had a couple cameos and some shows, but I just feel, I don't know. That's a, that's a whole other digression. We'll get back to that. Yeah. Yes. All right. So now that we've shared about how much this X-Men universe has shaped our own careers, what do we think of this movie? Let's get sad. Honestly, (laughs) I think I'm going to be a little, I'm going to be a slight optimist. There's this article that The Hollywood Reporter released, uh, I want to say, three, yesterday. Um, Yes, I saw that. Sorry, three days ago. On June 8th, called The Quiet Strengths of Dark Phoenix. And then, (laughs) two days thereafter, a.k.a. yesterday on June 10th, Hollywood Hollywood Reporter released an article called We Were Wrong. We Were Wrong! (laughs) (laughs) And I just, the We Were Wrong, the full title of it is Behind Fox's Dark Phoenix debacle. But just to touch on that first article that I mentioned, The Quiet Strengths of Dark Phoenix, I was reading it through and honestly I think that somebody paid this writer, Richard Newby, to possibly say some really good things. Because it's he he makes claims that um, the film pieces together things pretty well. Um, and I just have to go out and completely disagree with that. Because I will say, and you'll see this, you'll read this in the rubric that is out as you're listening to this episode, but I will say that Dark Phoenix had all of the components in the right places, but did not understand how to link them all to each other. Because I think yeah. every single one of these characters had the potential to go further. I think the biggest thing that really dragged it down was the dialogue. It was so slow. It felt, it felt unnaturally poorly paced like if you were to have a normal conversation about the things that they were talking about they would not it those conversations would not be timed out in the way that this film was timed out nothing felt natural nothing felt natural imagine if you haven't seen the movie yet imagine um you're talking as if we're talking today but every time we make a point we stop another person says a line then someone else goes and talks and there's just that same amount of awkward pause in between. It's just so wasteful, I think, and really did a disservice to the film to the point where I feel like there could have been so much more put into the dialogue, like in the time, in each scene, if you had just added like a few more lines of dialogue, I think that the film would be probably 10 times better. I have to say, like, I remember watching like, and this might have been just because like we had done our rip fox episode like a couple days before i was i watched yeah i think we had done a rip fox episode two days before i watched the film 
And I think I was still going in with that sentimentality, but I did agree with some of the points of, like, those quiet strings. Like, this movie does, like, the social issues and commentary that this article mentions by, like, Richard Newby. I definitely saw, like, this sort of commercial, like, this sort of commercialization with, like, the X-Men and, like, where they stand in society. And this sort of restrained route that they meant that he mentions like a lot of the points like that he noticed I did see but I do agree with your point that they have all the right pieces and just did they just didn't develop them any further at all like I think the first act I think about it now the first act of this film like establishes all those pieces pretty like as solidly as they can. Right. Yeah, I don't really develop it or take it on any further. Which was really disappointing and honestly a little bit more disheartening than like just not doing anything at all, I guess. If that makes any sense. No, I get you. Because it feels like they're picking it up and then they're just dropping it and not really doing anything with it. Which is really strange for how... I don't know, in tune to social issues. The comics make it seem like it is. And at times, the movies can make it seem like it is because they go and they treat mutants in such a disgusting manner that they're second-class citizens Mm -hmm. and used as weapons. But then this movie kind of opens with the X-Men are hailed as heroes, Mm -hmm. and then they very easily get dropped when Mm -hmm. someone steps out of line, which is a social commentary in and of itself. But it also... I don't know if saying the word ham-fisted feels right, uh-huh. but it kind of feels ham-fisted. Yeah, I'll go with ham-fisted because it's not played with as much. It's just there and it happens and you're supposed to deal with it on your own. And I felt like that could have been just helped out a lot better. I agree. I think that it's completely, it, it was a little irresponsible for that whole um, that whole issue to to have been addressed in one single scene. Because there's just so there's just so much juicy detail in there, and it's an issue like that idea of, as you said, like the mutants being treated as second class citizens. That uh, that conflict is existent throughout the entire comic book string. Exactly. The, like the entire run of the series, that is like one of the core issues. But like you address it in a single scene between Raven, who gets killed five minutes later. And Charles, yeah. who actually doesn't care, like it, it felt it felt cheap. It felt like it was like, here you go, hi, we care about marginalized people too. <coughs> no, you don't. Yeah, or if like, you do, you didn't take the time to really like flesh it out and show us how unfair it is. You know, exactly. Like two movies exactly. ago, they were building robots. They had Peter Dinklage building robots to come kill them. And mm-hmm. corral them up and put them in gulags. And now two movies later, oh, we're all cool. You guys, gulags, we're not doing that anymore. No more Here, concentration camps, Here's a camps, phone. You guys. Here's a direct line to the president. Here's a direct line, Charles. Please. You my man. You my boy right yeah. there. Right. <laughs> Which I feel I think like could what... also be, sorry, Izzy, to cut you off, but I just feel like it could also be possible commentary on, like, how the U.S. government kind of only, only panders to people. And then, like, disposes of them as soon as they're done. But that could be me reading into it. No, I think that's exactly what they wanted. I think that's exactly what they wanted to convey. Because it had this tone of, like, 
the best way I can describe it, because I watched Captain America's First Avenger yesterday, is when Chris is, when, when Steve Rogers is drawing um, the picture of him, like, as a monkey on a unicycle, like, is essentially being a puppet paraded, like, mm-hmm. for the U.S. government to use, like, that sort of sentiment is how I felt like they were conveying the X-Men, because the X-Men are, yeah, they're lauded as heroes among the public, like, they're known for being, like, this superhero team, like, being paraded out to solve these crises when the U.S. government can't do it, and, yeah, they're putting their own, like, as Raven says, like, they're putting their own people in danger more to protect these people who eventually turn their back on them mm-hmm. when Jean's grace spiral out of control. I think the biggest problem that this first class universe faced was that each movie is 10 years apart. And one, you don't age, you don't barely age in 10 years, but also it leaves so much room for this unexplained, like, storylines and, like, sort of history like because in 20 years i think it might have been feasible for the x-men to go from like like essentially like like yeah like we're putting like, yeah putting them in gulags and tournament camps to becoming like these heroes and having a better relationship with this with the u.s government but we don't get to see that we just see what happens within those films and this i think dark phoenix shows how poor that decades model was that's a really good point and i want to build on top of that they also don't call back to it in the script they don't go and describe a mission that happened where they like save the president from i don't know mastermind or like they stopped like a runaway train or something crazy like that they just gloss over these things and just let you interpret this relationship was built on the backbone of superheroics that you aren't gonna see but don't worry they happened wink wink nudge nudge mm-hmm. and it's kind of sad because like if you do that if you take the step you like give your audience a broader image. And I did not feel like I got a broader image. I feel like I got a paint by the numbers image that just stood on the page and was just like there. I saw it. It's all right. It is what it is. Thank you. That's Mm -hmm. how I felt about every single possible aspect of this film. Like whether it was like when it came to, um, to Raven and Hank's relationship, one single scene dedicated to the two of them showing them like, possibly having a life after you know and then like okay she's gonna be dead in the next 10 minutes so of course that's gonna happen right like because well it sort of felt like it was like well you know if they have a conversation about how they want to get out like they're gonna die right a la like gray worm in the sunday when gray worm's like i'm gonna take you back to where you know we're gonna go back to your home and we're gonna live a life together and then sunday gets off it's like it's a thing that happens it's a trope it's a trend but how can you go deeper and how can you show the audience that this relationship between these two characters is more than whatever happened to two movies ago? Mm-hmm. And I just feel like yeah. Dark Phoenix did not take a step further at all. It was just like, hey, these are the things that we're presenting. You should know that Hank is upset at Charles and then right after they have that fight and he angrily slams down the bottle, he's going to go to Magneto because that is logic. But I didn't believe it. What would make Hank turn on Charles after all those years 
and then all of a sudden come back and run the school doesn't make sense. Well, does he even slam the bottle? Because you never see it, like, you see it break apart in the middle of the air. Is someone just shooting bullets at it when we're not looking? What's going on there? Right. What's the editing, Fox? What are you doing? (laughs) But no, I get what you're saying there. Like, there's no, there's no, you don't know what the conflicts are at all. Mm -hmm. Like, why are, what's the deeper reasoning to these beefs? Yeah. Why is there actual beefs between people? Yeah, I think... Because I remember that scene really clearly because that reference that, like, we're the last of the first class between, like, Mystique and Beast, actually. So I, to sort of add, to sort of contradict and sort of add to your point, I think that this, I think that what Dark Phoenix attempts to do fairly well is try to call back to, like, these past X-Men movies, like the chess match at the end. Mm-hmm. And that line, like, we're the last of the first class. Like, when you think, it's like, if you, when you, you remember first class and you remember, oh yeah, it's just those two. And then Magneto ran off loose. And so that sentimentality is carried there. Mm-hmm. But exactly, if you, if you didn't, or like, yeah, if you haven't watched, like, if like, yeah, if you haven't really watched it since, or didn't, I guess, stick out, or that didn't really stick out to you, like, it doesn't carry through at all. It attempts to build on, it attempts to build on the continuity with, like, the previous first class movies, but they don't, I guess, I don't think they know how to gauge, like, what people liked and what people didn't like in those movies, and, like, what sticks and what doesn't stick. Yeah. Because that, because, like, Sabrina and I read that moment in two very different ways. Like, I thought, like, yes, like, the logic event that happens after Raven dies mm-hmm. is very like of course like very logical by the books. Like, like I knew Raven was about to die after that moment, but I still felt some sort of weight. But what didn't make sense was Nicholas Holt going to Magneto afterwards right. a little right. bit. Yeah, I would say that I felt the weight of Raven's death because of Jennifer Lawrence's performance. Like. And I haven't said that in a really long time. Like, Because of has, Jennifer Lawrence's performance? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> she has not made me feel some type of way since, like, Catching Fire, which was a long time ago. <laughs> um, Dude, Catching Fire is so good. So oh. good. It's the, I think it's the best so one. It's good. the best one out of Oh, out absolutely. Of I haven't watched part two of Mockingjay, but it's ab- Catching Fire is absolutely it's the best It's so one. good to the point where even my dad was like, yo, we have to actually buy this on Blu-ray. <laughs> yep. And I was like, "Oh, nice." Damn. I would. Is also... he prepared to be disappointed by Mockingjay Part Two, though? Oh yeah. I don't even know but if I, I want to watch it. We love Mahershala. <laughs> we love Mahershala. <laughs> Mahershala Ali has like uh, probably ten minutes of screen time when they're Ooh. like in the in the squadron that goes to in that goes to what's it called to like um raid the capital. Yeah. And then he ends up getting killed off. Yeah. Oh, thirteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would like to point us to a line. I mean, nobody has to turn. I was going to say, open your Bibles. I'm kidding. Um, in the in the Hollywood Reporter article that's called, that like has a byline of why Dark Phoenix is stronger than critics say, um, the, the author said, the writer says, um, Dark Phoenix taking a page from Logan goes for a more restrained route. It breathes deeply, slowly, while denying us that whoosh of an exhale. And this is regarding emotional shorthand. Or, like, emotional, um, 
more emotional scenes. And I would have to say that I disagree with that again wholeheartedly. Because it was slow, but not because it was trying to really savor the moment. The only moment, again, that really rang as emotional was Raven's death. Probably Mm. the best scene of the entire... And it wasn't even the whole scene that was good. It's just the whole part where she's like trying to say I love you to Hank. Like, that killed me. Yeah. But the rest of it, like, it breathes deeply, slowly, while denying us that whoosh of an exhale. Incorrect. It was slow because there wasn't enough dialogue, and it instead, each scene was chopped up into cut to a face. Face mm-hmm. says a line. Cut to another face. Face says a line. Cut to another face. Face says one line. Group shot, next scene. And that was essentially the pattern for the whole film. The movie was paced horribly for what it was and even then like i i just felt like it was taking me out of it like it was so slow that like i would laugh at like the different camera shots it was like watching um what the fuck is the name of that movie wait can i swear yes yeah all right word word (laughs) i always forget to ask that at the beginning but um it's like watching what's the movie about not david bowie about uh the guy from queen Bohemian oh, Rhapsody. Rhapsody. Yes. <gasps> that scene that's been going around the internet where it's just like all the different camera shots and you're and like they're literally the cutting while they're breathing. Yes. I it I don't know why, but that your description of that reminded me of that immediately and I'm just sitting there going, "Why why do these things just line up so well together?" But at the exact same time, Dark Phoenix is like an epic tale in a way. Like it's got so many people just going against each other. It's the X-Men versus like an alien empire versus the hellfire club and everybody's just out to take the phoenix and like get its power in terms of the hellfire club and the shiar which are not who they wind up fighting spoiler alert that not the aliens they wind up finding in this movie and then the x-men are just like we just want gene gray so cyclops won't be a sad mopey baby anymore and like somehow wind up marrying a clone which is an entire other thing and we did not get that this movie should have been faster paced there should have been more characters if they wanted to go with this entire story route and they should have made it bigger but instead because it's so choppy it's smaller by default not Mm -hmm. on purpose and it maybe it was blatantly done maybe they did try to pace it like logan but like i don't know i think that there's two different stories logan is built off of like a very slow pacing cowboy tale Mm -hmm. this is not a slow paced cowboy tale this is like an epic arc that just got paced to death right yeah it was exactly i think out Mm. yeah and i think like they and i think simon kinberg has said like they wanted i think it says so in like the we were wrong dark um hollywood reporter article too like that they wanted a more quieter film focused on the Dark Phoenix storyline and Jean Grey. They like they initially pushed for their original February release date and then got pushed back to June where summer blockbusters are born to happen. And they begged, please don't push us to June. They got pushed to June. Right. And because of James Cameron, like, they let the rest of the yeah. show. Fuck Alita, man. Fuck Alita. Fuck Alita. Um, Garbage. But yeah, like they I think from the start, like, they wanted to have this quieter route to Dark Phoenix, but Dark Phoenix isn't, as you said, Chris, like, a cowboy tale. Like, it's not a... Logan's a character study. And they try to make... They're... In trying to make Dark Phoenix a character study, you're neglecting all the other X-Men that bring... 
that like helped propel this universe to what it was. Like there are some characters that are completely like almost destroy themselves. Like Magneto is, I I didn't understand Magneto in this story at all. Like I think he's wasted on on dues almost. I think how they wrote Magneto almost like undercut nearly, the character uh, development. Exactly, yes. and everything that he, like, everything is established since first class. Like it's mm-hmm. nearly undercut. Some, like the family, like some, like, I don't think like some stuff like the family maybe for the better, but. <laughs> I just think, but, like, to, yeah. to depict his undercutting, how could you have him sit there in front of Gene and be like, hey, I stopped killing people because, you know, I realized that it wasn't making me feel any better and it wasn't changing anything for me and it was really just draining me. But the next second you're like, I want her dead. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make so- sense. Like, when he got so rabid, he he really became, like, very rabid yeah. when he found out Raven died. And it made no sense at all. I was like, where where did this come from? This where was their so romance? Funny. This is exactly. Okay, one, because where was the romance between Magneto and Raven? It was First not class. fleshed out as well. First class. Right, one kiss. One kiss, dude. How can it was steamy. That's, how, that's why he remembered her. It was steamy. Right. He got married to another woman and he was just pining for her the entire time. He was like, doesn't make sense, honey. you let Mystique come around me. You let Mystique come around me, baby. (laughs) And also, I love how this this, uh, is kind of akin to um, how fans reacted to Daenerys deciding to burn down King's Landing. You know, that idea of like, she spent so long being like, I'm not like my dad. And then she's like, Here's the bell, and she's like, never mind. Y'all all gotta die. Yes. And that was my biggest problem with that finale. And, and I would mm-hmm. say, I get it, but my answer to both of those arguments is, like, if you would spend more time fleshing out why this character would get to that place, I could believe it. But instead, yeah. you said, here is X, here is, here is Z, but you didn't give me a Y. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, bars. Yes. Yeah. Like, I mentioned in my review, like, let's, like, that what you establish in the film, like, in Dark Phoenix, essentially, I think, is what carries it. Because I don't remember what happened in Apocalypse. What makes you think anyone else does? So that, and yeah, at, even, like, like, yes, like, even, like, that continuity, like, that will stick out. And, like, it's still important. And, like, they still make some good attempts to carry that through. But I, but at the same time, like, if it wasn't, if you should know, like, what, knowing what stuck and didn't stick in the movie and having that carry on, like, have some knowledge of that. Because I think, like, there, I think points of, like, points of, like, Magneto's character arc mm-hmm. just didn't line up, like, really didn't line up from what we remember and what we establish. Like, what we've established in our minds from that movie. Especially that because Magneto's sense. been set up as being such a wise and calculating person that mm-hmm. for him this to want to rational. take on the the phoenix after having seen that he could barely like keep up a helicopter from her no that doesn't that make sense stupid he oh. wouldn't do that yeah yeah oh related to um Magneto and fastbender did you enjoy sabrina the wheel of accents in this movie um where uh, oh, okay. You know, let's Where talk about all of them. Where they just revert into like. <laughs> let's talk about all of them because the thing is, for any new listeners out there, I am a linguist officially. 
Um, so I have a lot of... With a degree! With a degree, baby. Um, so I have a lot of knowledge about this kind of stuff. And also because I consider myself self-taught with accents. And then, like, I'm going through the process of trying to get, like, certified and being able to teach accents as well. So That's just dumb. for people being out there, I am, I like to consider myself a pseudo-expert on my way to becoming certified as an expert. Thank you. Um... So my issue with a lot of these, thank you, a lot of these accents is that they didn't, they were incredibly inconsistent. So let's number one, start with Sophie Turner. Turning American for someone like her, I can't exactly remember the name of her town, even though in like the Wired autocomplete interview she did with Jessica Chastain, she said it like 40 times, but I still don't remember. It's some small country town in England, as you could expect. Mm. Um... But her accent isn't as heavy or thick or strong as a lot of other British people that you might, other British actors that you might know. Um, and so I was expecting her to do pretty well as Jean Grey. She did okay in the last movie, in Apocalypse, um, but I feel like her accent stepped up a little bit here as well. My only thing is that there was this one line that she said where the A vowel um, was really nasally when it really didn't need to be. And I don't know if anyone else felt that it was weird, but it was like in her last voiceover talking about how she was the Phoenix or whatever. Um, she just, she sounded a little off. And now we'll get to James McAvoy, okay? We love a good Scottish lad doing a British accent. We know he can do a lot of impressions and voices and things like that because we've seen Split or Glass or... I don't know, him just goofing off on SNL. Arthur Christmas. Oh, oh my God, I yes. love Arthur Christmas. He's so talented. I love James McAvoy. Respect. Oh my God. Um, this accent felt a little, sounded a little bit more like one of his characters in Split and Glass when he plays like the, the British woman with the turtleneck. It yes. sounds more like her than it does Patricia? like yeah. Charles Xavier from First Class and Days of Future Past, etc. Um, but I don't know if that was probably because they were he was filming Glass and this in tandem possibly um that makes sense actually so that could have happened why it bled over but michael fassbender absolutely loved him but his irish accent was slipping in a couple times and lastly yeah. everyone's favorite the one we love to hate alexandra ship oh lord I, oh Lord, I, I don't want to give her that much crap because I don't think that the dialect coaches really even paid attention to her. Like, I, I feel like if it were, if it had been me coaching her, I would have recommended that her accent be toned down a little bit because we're kind of assuming a little bit of a time skip between Apocalypse and this film which would mean that naturally she would have had time to take maybe speech lessons or um, work on, because she's teaching classes to students, work on um, a certain like specific teaching voice that really helps her project and be understood by a vast majority of her students who are supposed to be essentially like people from all over the country, all over the world, mutant, mutant children coming in to learn. So she has to be as, um, as understandable as possible. And truthfully, I, the aspects of her accent doesn't make sense for where she's, she's supposed to be Egyptian, right? Like in Apocalypse, she's introduced as like an, as an Egyptian, like, um, I don't know, thief or whatever. 
But that accent is fine. Now that sounds right. Egyptian. Yeah, I was like, really confused by that. I thought it, she was supposed to be Kenyan and then just lives in Egypt or somewhere within like the realm of at some point the country she's from was owned by Britain and right. then just she wound up in Egypt exactly. and it was very off putting. I personally just don't did not want Alexandra Ship in this role. I've voiced that many a time. But it more or less has to do with the fact that I think that they should have found an African actress Agreed. to go and to play a dark to play a dark skinned woman on the screen because that would just be such a power other than it being a powerful image, it would just be really great to see that as a whole. Mm-hmm. And to see that they took the time to think about that instead of finding another light skinned actress. This isn't to say that I think that Alexandra Ship is a bad actress. I actually have seen her in a couple other things and I find her to be very funny and very good with timing and Mm -hmm. just very able to connect. But like, I also did not think that this was the role for her. Agree. I just couldn't see it. And like her accent is just very up and down for me. It's so, it it just puts you out of it. Cause you're just like, especially for a lot of people like who have parents that are Caribbean or whatever, like, or um, of the of the diaspora, the children of the diaspora, essentially, like, we can all tell that it's fake. Yeah. Whereas, like, Chadwick Boseman, hello, is a black American man who still managed to work with speech coaches who helped him work with his voice and turn it into a, into, um, a T'Challa that was believable. So I don't think that... I mean, I don't, I don't think that she has an excuse, but I do believe that I, I really think that those dialect coaches did her dirty. Yeah. It's kind of just sad at that point because it's just like, they just left her out there to hang. Right. Just, mm-hmm. wow. I, oh, I yeah. also mentioned this in the rubric, but I feel like it would have been wise for her to do a thing that Elizabeth Olsen did um, when playing Scarlet Witch, was, which was to just let it fade away. You know, it could, it could come out maybe in your R's or in your, in a couple vowel sounds, but it doesn't need to be a heavy accent. It just needs to sound a little weird sometimes. That's it. Or like when my mom gets angry and she just lets the full Trinidadian out, just, (laughs) just snaps into it. Because I've heard my mother yell at someone in her office and I'm just like, Ooh, y'all got Sandra from Port of Spain today. Sheesh. There's a way. There's yeah. a way that people of color speak to their majority counterparts, and there's a way that they speak to each other, aka code switching. Mm-hmm. So, could have used that. Are there any characters that you missed or want to talk about more? I feel like we should take this opportunity to ask, kind of like how we do in the Stuco. Um, did you find this villain? threatening was this a good villain that is a say it deep with question. me everyone maybe. oh maybe oh, no. no okay so we got fuck no no and maybe maybe um let's start from let's start from maybe <laughs> i say maybe because one i love jessica chastain more than i love um the sunshine because Mm. she's just ridiculously versatile and is good in every single thing she's ever been in. Honestly, I said, I wrote in the review that 
I feel like not. I feel like James McAvoy couldn't save this film, but Jessica Chastain definitely did. I feel like her very first introduction, like we see her and she's she's basically like herself almost at the at that dinner party, and then you know she goes to check on Lucy, and then Luna, I think it's Luna, um, and then she comes back and all of a sudden she's just stoic and and threatening, and I was like, oh shit, here we go. But then, but then the CGI really did her dirty because I feel like it covered up the fact that she couldn't fight as well, which could not be true. But I honestly feel like the villains didn't need to be that complex, right? So you have this alien race who, you know, literally explained exactly what they wanted to do in the first few minutes of them being introduced. So... Thank you. We didn't have to work very hard, but just saying, introducing them, having them coming in and saying, we are here to take over. We we're here to, you know, leech this power from Gene and then we're going to kill everybody so that we can start our own lives. It's like, okay, cool. But for me, the fact that they were shape-shifting. And so this is the really interesting part when that other Hollywood report um, article comes into the place. AV club one. Yeah, the because was that the AV Club one? Yeah. So yeah. Um, there was a mention of Ty Sheridan in one of the Ty Sheridan plays Cyclops slash Scott. Um, one of the interviews that he did prior talking about how um, what was he saying? Talking about the fact that the, one of the endings, the one of the alternate endings that they initially shot was more akin to the Skrulls in um, Captain Marvel, so they cut it. But Anyway, I feel like that idea of these of these beings being shapeshifters is incredibly scary because you don't know who you can trust, right? Yeah. And it got to the point where when the military comes to pick up Gene from Magneto, I thought that those guys were those aliens. And I was like, wait, because remember how they had like infiltrated the FBI and then at some point like had also infiltrated parts of the White House. So it was like, okay. When are they going to become part of the military? Like, is this them? But no, that was actually the for real military, which wouldn't make sense. Why would they send the for real military to go and capture an all-powerful mutant that, that can, can destroy them with the flick of her wrist? That's what took me out of it a little bit. Like, it felt like they were diluting that plot and just, like, taking away this potential for them to be deeply more villainous mm -hmm. than they looked. And it was just like, okay, we're just going to go we're gonna have them be in all these other parts but at the end it's gonna be the u.s government and the mutants against these aliens and we're gonna just see how it goes and i thought that was kind of a cop-out like it was a sad yeah. cop-out at the end because you could have done something so deep but they were like oh no this isn't captain marvel you guys you guys you guys we can't take this out right now we gotta right. reshoot this we gotta make sure that it's good mm -hmm. and also i felt after reading the av club article i was like Wow. So did anybody know what movie they were walking into when they went to the premiere or did Literally they all just go mm, roll a dice? I feel yeah. like they just didn't know what was going on for the entire production process. Mm -hmm. It's like the yeah, theory like about how um, when they were making Endgame, people thought that not people. Um, There's a theory. The that, yeah, they were given everybody was given different scripts and they shot like five different scenes for everything. Yeah. Yeah, like only like a hand, like only like 
less than five people got like a copy of the actual script. Yeah, but that was totally, more so like, because that. I don't think that was because of indecision, though, right? That was more because they were like, like we secrecy. Can't, yeah, yeah secrecy. we can't have Mark Ruffalo and Tom Holland like accidentally spilling that you know so and so died. Boys, <laughs> even though they're everyone's favorites. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, different universe. I mean, time. them and Paul Rudd. Oh, we love Paul Rudd. <laughs> Ageless Paul Rudd. He really hasn't aged. It's gonna be shocking because he's gonna turn sixty-five and be like, "Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm old now." And then he'll have like one wrinkle in his forehead, and we're like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah. What? Listen, like the man DC uses movie. cocoa butter and gold. I'm telling you. Oh. Cocoa butter and gold—that's a secret right there. That's why black don't crack. I mean, you're unless not it's on crack. Right. <laughs> Shout out Reagan. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I thought like. For me, it was a no, because I thought that, like, I agree with you, like, a lot, Chris. Like, the fact that the U.S. and, like, the X-Men had to team up to defeat its alien race felt very phoned in and, like, a co- I felt, felt, like, very phoned in and, like, a cop-out. Like, of course, like, of course it's gonna happen. Like, of course they need to, like, work together to save, like, the alien, because that's what happens. Yeah. It felt, it felt, like, atypical, and I think, I do agree that, like, like, I do agree that that lightning change from like like Jessica Chastain's like human self to her, to look like her alien self was very stark and necessary and really well done. But I think just the character of Vuck in general was just so I don't blame her. I blame the script. So dry and lifeless. Even though like that's what Vuck is almost supposed to be, like. It just felt very, like, it was easy, in a sense, like, it was easy to root against her, but I almost felt like every time I watched her, I wanted to go back to the X-Men more, because they were more interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, she didn't have that much going on behind, like, her one motivation. There wasn't, like, a family, or there wasn't, like, a deeper motivation to that character. I found it really... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was sorry, I was gonna say, like, yeah, even, like, the storyline of her and her alien like race like saying like oh we're the only ones left by the end of the movie she's literally the only one left like i think this race is now extinct because the x-men killed everyone so yeah. all motivation and like sort of interest and backstory for her is just gone right and then she really has no value at that point wow oh shit i didn't even think about it like that I was going to say that I just found her very Tilda Swinton-esque mm-hmm. and there's like a time and a place for that. And I think that it could have been done better if the script was just like, Hey, we know what you're doing here. Don't worry. We got you. Right. And just gave her more to play with. Like even Tilda Swinton play in like, she's in line, the witch in the wardrobe and she's in Dr. What am Strange. I? Dr. Strange. Yeah. There's like little jokey things that are just like, you're playing it for the straight face and that's why you're doing it. And, like, I don't know about you guys, but I was laughing at how staccato the dialogue was, but not at any of the actual jokes, if there right. were any, because, whoo, this movie was drier than the desert. <laughs> so dry. I'm so glad we've gotten to that, because I know it's not a joke, but the thing that I almost laughed at was when Raven was like, and by the way, the women do a lot more work around here, so you might want to consider changing the name to X-Women. I was like, yes. did Simon Kinberg write this? Because it's garbage. 
I mean, he did write this. Yes. Oh, my, this is my problem, is that if you, I say this in the rubric as well, but, you know, a lot of people will say, like, but how do you make a movie about mutants? Like, how do you make that even approachable? How do you make that seem more down to earth? It's very simple. Sit around a group of people and listen to how they talk to each other. Go mm-hmm. to a coffee shop. Go, go to a coffee shop and listen to how people of different um, backgrounds and ages how they interact with each other. Clearly, Homie doesn't know how people speak to each other because this is not it. Yep. Like, and he was like, he was probably like, oh, let me um. I know I got some feminists in here. Let me just throw a line that should make somebody happy. I don't know. Check a box. Yeah. Like, it played more as a joke than, like, like I saw some article or review saying, like, yeah, like, Jennifer Lawrence, like, best line of the film. I'm like, that is, if you think that's the best line of the film, Ooh, like, right. I have questions. Right. <laughs> very true. <laughs> I very sad and questions. very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, to play on social, to, to, I guess to talk about like those socials and the commentary more. I will go into this more in the rubric itself, but I we mentioned this in the beginning of the we mentioned this in the beginning of the episode. Like any any kind of commentary they tried to play at with this commercial day of the X Men, like how they're heroes, how they're being a play like almost like played like like by like, play, like playing at that tension with like you do is government like protecting like them over their own selves like. It's all touched upon and never really picked up again. Those social issues are purely to drive and propel more of Charles as a character than to service the actual movie. Mm-hmm. And I will continue in the rest of my thesis because <laughs> for in this for essay, the... I will. <laughs> yes, yes, I love that meme. Okay. Um, but yeah, for the one thing that the first class movies I think do really, really well is that they propel, and I talk about this in the rubric as well a lot, that they propel, they break down the, this stigma of what, um, the stigma, not the stigma, but they break, they almost like break down um, Patrick Stewart's portrayal of Charles Xavier within like the older X-Men films. Like, because a lot of people see him like, and um, Patrick Stewart's like performance aids this as like this very like like same thing wise like very nurturing like almost like a, a little fatherly like but overall very nurturing protector like nature of Charles Xavier he just wants to cultivate these like cultivate like these means to help them learn and to serve society and like better society and the and like we usually see Professor X as that but what the first class movies do a great job while they're starting to surpass is that they break him down. They make him human. They make him have flaws. They make him... They try to villainize him at what... That's not a word. But I'm making it a word. They try to, like, villainize him at Antagonize? some point in this movie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Villainize. Yeah, they, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But, like, they try to... They, they do try to antagonize him at points in his franchise. And I think that's really, really interesting... And very, it is, like, yeah, very interesting for this franchise to do. And I think they did a really good job. It And this is also mostly in part by McAvoy, who does an amazing job in this role. And I don't even imagine, like, going off of Stuart and McAvoy, the next person who plays Professor X, has big shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. But That's this true. is, but, yeah, this is, like, these social issues of, 
these social issues, the what they mainly focus on, like in this sort of commercialization, like this heroic nature of the X-Men, it's solely focused on the esteem of Charles. You see Charles at this banquet. You see Charles like on the phone with the president. Right. You see Raven like attacking Charles for like, yeah, you just enjoy all this attention and you're selfish and like mm-hmm. you don't really care about anyone. Like it's purely to they're purely to highlight Charles as a character and not anyone else in this mansion at all. Exactly. Yeah. Why why are you trying to like advertise this film as being like an, having an ensemble cast when the main conflict is between two characters, Jean and Charles? Yeah. I don't understand. Like, like not the rest of the characters did not get enough development in order to support Raven's like issue with Charles being selfish. Yeah. Propelling the whites. That's what this movie does. Oh, wow. <laughs> Propelling the whites. We love an AP Marvel episode hosted by the people of color. Hello. Diversity. <laughs> oh my god. So very off topic and aside. But so in my work meeting today, we were talking about like a panel and like putting people like from like our like from like I guess it's off from like our like, office, like on this panel. And it was so like and so one and so like one of my supervisors, she's black, and she said um, those people are all white, and the other girl, and, like, the other, my other supervisor and, like, our graduate assistant sort of were, like, yeah, and my, and, like, yeah, the black supervisor was, like, yeah, I'm just saying, you gotta put some people of color on this panel, and I was so, like, damn, that is some, that, yeah, that was a, that, that might have been a hot take from my supervisor, if I'd ever seen one. (laughs) If you're, if you're a token at all in your, in your current work environment. Me? Yeah. And also Chris. No. Okay. I'm, I'm one of two people, two people of color in my workplace, oh, and right. I do not feel like a token, but, like, I occasionally have to go and yell, yo, shut the fuck up about this, y'all don't know shit, <clears throat> when well, someone makes a very unsavory comment about, like, I don't know, uh, Mattapan, a very black-dominant neighborhood in Boston. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you yeah, the only like, black person, though? Uh, yeah, I'm the only black person. The other oh, person sick. is Asian. Well, what about you, Izzy? You're not the only... Are you the only person of color? No, I'm not. It's actually... So, in, like, the core team that's here right now um, in Pittsburgh, there, um, it's six women, which is great. Nice. That's cool. Um, most people are... Actually, the majority is Asians. Okay. But awesome. it's, like, two... But it's, like, two student workers um, that sort of, like secretary logistics coordinator and then the other supervisor and then the the graduate students like yeah the graduate assistant is white and the other supervisor is white who has like the hmm, weird to explain like weird to explain but like more focused position within like my office but super but like all women which is great (laughs) but also yeah i am the i am the i am the age minority i don't know how to word that i'm i'm one of the youngest people there okay yeah which makes sense but yeah tales of the work life visuals do you want to talk about that i liked them yeah me too so pretty yeah it was good use of color i agree i really love i didn't know if i was going to like the effect on jean's face um from the poster but just seeing like watching the phoenix like 
through her veins was probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I would say I think that- I knew from, yeah. Go ahead, Izzy. Sorry to cut you off. Mm-hmm. I think I knew from, like, even, like, the mark, even, like, the posters, like, not, even, like, the posters of this movie, like, the one of, like, Jean Grey, like, with, when you first see, like, the phoenix, like, through her veins, and even, like, the one where she's, like, standing on, like, on these ashes, and, like, it's very subtle in the background. I was like, this is different. This is cool. This is gonna be visually good, at least. <laughs> yes, it's gonna pop and be pleasing. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, not going to be Apocalypse looking like Ivan Ooze from the Power Rangers movie. It was, Apocalypse was like super grorange, I want to call it. Like, yeah. it, it was it was orange but undersaturated. So it looked a little ashy. Whereas I feel like Dark Phoenix, the, the scene in the forest, like the forest party, so pretty. Like it was a little dark, but the colors that they chose to use, really, really nice. I feel like the um, the production design as well in this movie, ooh, like all the scenes, all of the locations that they chose were really pretty. Like from um, Jessica Chastain's character, her that from that house to the oh that house that house was super nice. Um, but also to the 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 little that conflict scene towards the end, the the battle with Magneto and Jean and Charles and all of them in that mansion, like. That was also really pretty. Um, but I will say my biggest qualm with visuals is like the, the editing, which we already talked about. Not the editing, sorry, the camera work. Because I'm thinking of like this scene where um, Hank is um, doing like a routine checkup on Gene after the mission. And, you know, I don't understand why they felt the need to have um, each person have like Nicholas Holt's head as one shot and then Sophie Turner's head as another shot when you could have just put it put the camera like angled in a way that would make it look like the audience was like actually sitting in the in the room with them with them you know kind of like if you would wield up a second chair next to next to the the exam table and had sat and like were looking at them that would probably be the most ideal way to actually visualize that scene but for some reason like choices like that I guess camera angles to me also pulled me out of it because they just didn't feel natural or like they were too they were they were trying too hard to be on the nose about a um pole focus so if there's somebody like for example you have Mystique in the front and then Hank on off of her shoulder if we needed to see Hank's reaction or even like Scott's reaction you would have Mystique being super sharp and clear with like whomever in the back being uh, blurred and out of focus. And then all of a sudden, dramatic shift focus to that person in the background now is becoming super clear and, and, and visible. And I just felt like that was a little meh. It's like they kept switching between shots mm-hmm. and just trying to pick the best one. When in reality, if you just gave them like the you said it best yourself, Sabrina, to just sit down in the exam chair looking out and you see what's going on, it would have just worked better. Right. And I think you said it perfectly, honestly. I don't even have anything else to add. That was a big gripe for me. It was very confusing. Yeah. It, It wasn't consistent. But I feel like, you know, and nobody would know this, I guess, if you didn't do the extra reading, but like, that all of that, all those inconsistencies came from the number of reshoots that they had to do. And they had to do 
so many because um, all of these actors were shooting other big projects at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of hard to like get the same angles right, but you got to do what you got to do. And so it ends up being, as you said, Chris, like stitching it together and trying to find the best looking shot. Mm-hmm. Played by bad editing and I forgot what else but that article said. But yeah, played by bad editing and a host of other issues. Um, Dark Phoenix overall disappoints. Yes. I think that's a perfect summary. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any final thoughts? I love the Dazzler in the forest. I just had to get that out there. Very pro Dazzler in the forest. Very pro that they used Dazzler in the 90s in yeah. the forest. I, Wait. I just thought that was a beautiful scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's like a little Easter egg. Yeah. Need, this movie needed more Easter like, eggs I was also. like, why, why is this familiar to me? But I couldn't figure out why. I really couldn't figure out why. But it looked good. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. It took me a minute, and then I looked it up, and I was like, oh, okay. So this movie has an Easter egg. Cool, cool, cool. That's, yeah. That makes up for something. I don't know what, but it makes up for something. Yeah. Like, I think this was a very misguided, bitter, like, very bittersweet, tragic, misguided end to this franchise. And I yeah. think all our, I think, yeah, the buildup of, like, our history and then just the utter disappointment we faced just kind of showed that. So, Brina, do you have any final thoughts? I am pretty excited for this franchise to be over and to be <laughs> kind of, like, not touched for a while because I think Marvel has a lot of thinking to do in terms of where they want to take it next. Um, and I feel like, you know, there there is the uh, the New Mutants that's coming up which apparently is not looking too great. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure, isn't, um, isn't, isn't uh, Maisie Williams in that? Yeah. 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 She's wow. Taylor Spain. Joy. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, really? With any, oh, wow. That's awesome. But see, I just feel like that's going to be another waste of a good cast. Anyway, I'm just saying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a horror film. It's a horror film? Yeah, they're supposed to be playing it as a horror film. They filmed around Boston and in Dedham and okay. in, like, old abandoned hospitals. And it's supposed to be a horror film where they're taken to a mental hospital and they're getting chased by, like, the Shadow King or something like that throughout the entire hospital. It's an entire thing. I think they've done reshoots recently. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's, like, yeah, it's originally most, like, yeah, it was, like, originally meant to be, like, this horror film, like, from Josh Boone. And I think they're just taking that and, like, completely destroying it. That's what they're going to do. Which is really sad because at that point, I would just shelve it. I would just never release it. I would just let it, never let it see the light of day. Or just put out the original copy. Yeah. Exactly. Don't burn your money. Exactly. Like, I think, like, yes. Like, I remember the first round of reshoots were to add more horror. And now, like, I don't know what these reshoots are. I thought the double down on horror was a brilliant idea because I was like, you you're going in a completely different direction you're shooting for the stars and that can work if you play it the right way and i thought more horror more more fun yeah like i think the x-men universe has shown like through deadpool through logan these genre films work and if they had just stuck to that maybe this merger would have not happened potentially Mm. who knows but there's still a main x-men universe to make so what can you do? 
I mean, you can try and get the job and then years and years later, get a job within the film industry years and years later, when it comes back around and you're in like your mid thirties, you can try and make the movie and be like, yo, listen, I know y'all fucked up years and years ago, right. but that was the But 2010s. let me help you, dog. Exactly. <laughs> let me, let me bless you. your life right. with you my ideas. <laughs> you need me. That's really kind of, me. that's kind of my angle. Like right now is like, let me just, just sneak on over to Disney and just see what I can do. Listen, I'm telling you, when you get that job, just call me up and I'm just going to rattle things off over the phone and be like, I don't need any money. Actually, wait a second. I do. You do. (laughs) Yes. Nice try. We pay our people for their ideas. Exactly. It's Disney money. I will take it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um, Sabrina, where can people find you? On Twitter, you can find me at Sabs Clark. That's at S-A-B-S-C-L-A-R-K-E. And on Instagram, you can find me at Sabrina.m4v. That's at S-A-B-R-I-N-A dot M4V. Chris, thank you so much for being on our episode today. Thank you for having me been really excited to come on and i really like the podcast and what you guys have been doing so far it's always funny uh shout out to chris capendio also because i follow him on twitter now and i've never not laughed at one of his tweets so nice yeah do you have anything else you want to plug um i gotta plug the rhyme we're probably gonna come out with some presidential stuff soon uh, Pub Square is our political platform. We have Scraptitude for MMA and boxing. I have an article coming out about the fact that Warner Brothers should do a Batman Beyond movie and Ooh. stop doing Bruce Wayne stuff. Um, I can't think of anything else, but I will plug my social media. I am at CWLKR20 on Twitter and Instagram. So smash that follow button. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I am at Delirlin on Twitter, um, and I am working on my Instagram right now, so that's next week, probably. Um, you can subscribe to AP Marvel um, on anywhere you can listen to podcasts, on Apple, Google, Spotify, um, and our YouTube channel as well. Um, leave a review. Give us good ratings. Um, help us do better. Um Subscribe to our Patreon and follow us there and give us uh, donate us money if you liked what you heard. Um, follow our medium for content such as this podcast and the rubric coming out with this podcast at the same time. Here are more in-depth thoughts on what you heard today. Um, and also um, join our Discord. Um, great community, super fun, and just a great place like for ideas to cultivate. Um, thank you to Charles Villanueva for the graphics, um, Steve Maltor for our, the music, and thank you to all our patrons. And thank you for listening today. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Excelsior.